This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hello, it's Jody Stemmler. We are at the 2019 SHOT Show. And I'm Steve Belinda, and we are very, very thankful to have our next guest, Mr. Shane Mahoney. Colleague, friend, mentor, visionary, I could go on and on. But Shane is the uh, founder and director of Conservation Visions. That's correct. Welcome, Shane. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, Shane, um, first off, how... What is Conservation Visions? And tell, just give us a little bit of your background, how you got to where you are today. We know you're our friend from north of the border. Um, you've done a lot of work on ungulates, caribou, and others. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been instrumental in, in getting word out to a lot of folks on the Foundation of Conservation. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I think the early formative years of my life really explain all the rest of it, including what I do today. Um, I was born and raised on the island of Newfoundland, which is sort of the the furthest flung piece of rock on the North American continent eastward. Next step after us is really Ireland uh, as, you, as you travel east. And um, I was very fortunate to grow up in, in an extraordinarily not just an extraordinarily rural environment, where, which many people today think of as a rural environment, as rural farms with roads that are kind of dirt roads and people have an opportunity to travel them. But I grew up in communities, some of them which didn't have any roads at all. And where I grew up first, my earliest years, uh, we had only dog sled and, and boat to really move us from one place to another. So when you talk about rural, uh, you're really talking about rural. It was a community of uh, obviously fishing people who uh, really were at the forefront of the colonization of North America and really were at the forefront of the exploitation of natural resources there. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a childhood of just complete and utter freedom. Uh, everybody in the community was known to one another. Every man above a certain age was an uncle. Every woman above a certain age was called aunt. And we were communally raised in a sense, um, and we had untold and uncontrolled access to the ocean and to the land, and really spent our time as young children, in, uh, you know, participating in what were relatively dangerous circumstances uh, near boats and wharves and, and, and so on and so forth. And out of that experience, where everyone kept some animals, had their own gardens, hunted and fished, for a living, as I explained to many people, we were a death-dependent culture. And out of that, the idea of using nature was became a very natural thing. But there were many other important dimensions that came to me as a result of that, which I've tried to articulate in my lectures and views and writings further in my life, which is those experiences and those cultures create a kind of human, a kind of humanity that is very special. And you both may be aware, and if you're not, you should be, and so should your listeners, and they can Google this. There is a a play now that's uh, just blasting its way through Broadway in England called Come From Away, which talks about how Newfoundland welcomed the tens of thousands of American travelers during 9-11 that could not get bad into American airspace. It is all true. 
And that wasn't Newfoundland of, you know, 1950, 1970, 1960, 1920. That was Newfoundland of just a few years ago. We're still this kind of, you know, very open and, and, and aggressive generosity of welcoming the stranger is there. So um, out of that, out of that um, boyhood grew an intense interest in the outdoors. Uh, as I've explained to many people over the years, I'm not in this business to save hunting. I'm not in this business to, uh, to save government agencies. I'm not in this business to save NGOs, although I do my best to help with all those things. I have one and only one motivation, and that motivation is to keep wild animals with us. Uh, and whatever, whatever embraces that opportunity, I am for. And whatever is against that opportunity or impairs that opportunity, I am fundamentally against. And that is how I split my worldview, if you will. Uh, I grew up loving animals, whether they were domestic or wild. I was fascinated with them. I retained that love of animals and the fascination. I am easily withdrawn from any conversation by the passing of the, the slightest creature, insect, small bird, dog. It doesn't make any difference. And I also believe fundamentally that they are exactly the same as we are. I see absolutely no difference, a shock to some of your listeners, I'm sure, between the rest of animate creation and human beings. We're just another kind of life form with our own spectacular talents and problems but we're no more spectacular than the migrating whales or the butterflies or the African lion or the great bear, the grizzly bear or the caribou that sweep across the continent. Um, we're just different and we're all in this one ecological equation together, no matter what people want to think, which is fundamentally that flesh eats flesh. The natural systems of the planet have to sustain us. We take from them in one form or another what we hope to do as human beings is take, fr take from those systems in a sustainable, honorable way. And I happen to believe that hunting and angling represent two of those honorable and sustainable traditions. So Shane, what you're, what you're explaining, just explained, is real similar to a lot of indigenous people's beliefs. Um, they call them native North Americans mm. or uh, Americans. Um, and it, I find it very interesting that the Scandinavians, is that correct, that founded Newfoundland, where you come from, hold that same belief that was then transferred down to you. Mm. Do you think that has something to do with how you had to use the natural world to, as you say, survive, to, you know, uh, create the food and the enjoyment and everything else? Or is, you know, where I'm going with this is how are we so different? with that European influence for a lot of what we see now in North America because a lot of folks don't hold those same views. Well, uh, I think that the, uh, you know, societies are like anything else in this world. They're like ecosystems that have various phases and stages and then can in fact actually be replaced over longer periods of time by massive changes in climate or things of this nature. Society is not a, um, a static thing. It is a constantly changing organic interface of uh, inherited values and suppositions and assumptions, new knowledge requirements, and the setting of new values. Um, I think there is, yes, a drift away from what we might call the kind of historical and almost mythological engagements with nature that were manifest in not only Native Americans, but in hunter-gatherer societies around the world. Um, but I also believe that some of these things still resonate within us, and their expressions, however, may not 
sometimes be consistent with where the narrative began. So, for example, and then you take something like hunting. Hunting was our way of life for 99.9 .9 excuse me percent of our existence. Um, and along that way, as the parietal or cave art of France and Spain clearly indicate, uh, we came to have a relationship with those animals that far transcended the idea of food. I mean, food was fundamental. We had to have that. We had to have the hides and the fat and the sinew and, and, the, and the bones and all of these things for all of our many uses. But nobody went into those deep caves and painted those magnificent murals of these wild creatures because they just thought of them as so many pounds of meat. So those mythologies were very strong in those people. Yet today, we see these mythologies expressed in rather different ways. Go into any store in Canada or the United States, or in Europe even today, and just make note of the amount of animal symbolism that is displayed. Whether it is in clothing or on the cover jackets of books, or whether it is in, in, in the shape and design of furniture, or the logos that are put on... Uh, on clothing, as I said, uh, glasses that have images of animals on them. I mean, we are, we, are, we are seeing an absolutely almost unbounded use of the animal expression in modern uh, communications, technologies, and marketing. We have a little gecko that sells us insurance. We have a <laughs> duck that sells us, you know, fertilizer, yeah. <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I think some of the mythologies, if you will, are transcending. Uh, but they're coming out in slightly different ways. This is leading to a separation, uh, which I think is maybe where your question was leading. It is, it is leading to a separation to some extent of people from the realities of killing and consuming animals, which were, was the foundation of where these mythologies emerged. But I also think that we are now beginning to see a counterculture with respect to this. How big it will become, we don't know. But there is a counterculture where people in unexpected environs, like urban centers, for example, which were supposed to be the death knell of, right. of hunting and angling, are coming to the idea that they would like to take responsibility for their own food. They are going to eat meat. They realize that death is involved, despite all the funny cliche stories saying people in cities don't know where meat comes right. from. Um, and this, this is linking them back now to these more ancient feelings about animals and what they represent. So, yeah, I think that, that, that things have changed substantively. But I also believe that many of the exact same things that took place 40,000, 50,000 years ago with Cro-Magnon, our immediate ancestor in the human lineage, are exactly the same as today. One of the most important of which, of course, is this idea of how we feel when we're outdoors and experiencing nature, how we feel when we're in the pursuit that we call hunting, and how we feel compelled after we have harvested something from the wild that we feel absolutely driven to share it. These are not new, modern inventions. These are ancient, old inventions that still reverberate in our, in our lives and in our physiology and anatomy, for that matter. With that in mind, you are working on something called the Wild Harvest Initiative, um, which is trying to uh, communicate some of these, these concepts and, and, and reconnect people with their foods where, you know, and, and getting outdoors. Tell us a little bit about that program and, and what you've got going on with that. Well, you know, it's, uh, most people are aware that there's kind of this rising uh, sort of worldview or world concern with the issues of health uh, and also with the issues of, of the healthiness of our food, where our food comes from. 
and the connections between food and health. Um, you know, people are concerned about additives and antibiotics and all these kinds of things. Uh, and this trend has many, many dimensions, which include the rise of chefs to the, uh, uh, to the status of iconic sort of superstars in, in the world, uh, massive sales of cookbooks on every kind of diet, farm-to-table, locavore, all of which are focusing more on, on healthily generated foods, which of course encompasses wildlife and wild fish, but also encompasses wild berries and wild fruits and wild mushrooms and medicinal plants and all those kinds of things. I believe this is one of the very first times that there has been a kind of modern recapture uh, of, an, of ancient traditions for the reasons of health that's also based on scientific evidence. We know that these wild foods are extremely healthy. We know that those wild foods uh, can be gathered sustainably. And we know that those wild foods also involve engagements with nature, which independent of the food itself, we now know has major health benefits, lowering of, of blood pressure, um, burst of endorphins coming out in the brain to tell us that we feel good, we feel happy, and also something that human beings have, have been preoccupied with forever since we became human, which is something that's going to become a bigger part of my program, which is what I call the harvest of beauty. The visual impact as a visual primate of being out in those circumstances has extraordinary impact on people. Great mountain peaks or right. placid lakes or great sunsets or vicious storms even, you know, things that are natural. Uh, and the scientific evidence that's coming out for this now is, is, is quite amazing. Also, we have to find a way to reconnect people as much as possible with the natural world. We focused on children in some ways because we think they need to grow up there, and I think that that is certainly a, a valuable and, and, and worthwhile cause. But we have to find a way to keep people engaged in nature as they go through life. And I believe that one of the biggest platforms for doing this actually involves natural harvests, not just of wildlife or fish, but all these other commodities, firewood, uh, you know, medicinal mushrooms. plants, as I said, wild mushrooms, wild nuts, wild berries, and so on and so forth. And I was interested in finding a way to put all this into a kind of strategic approach uh, to this issue rather than the individual, you know, a show that might deal with food or a, a chef's cooking show on television or a book that's published on it or something. I wanted to make this part of a societal narrative to get back to pe talking to people across all those activities and saying, look, this is a good thing. This is a natural thing. And there's only way for us to, the only way for us to keep these natural things is to keep wildlife habitat, you know, good ecosystems, strong ecosystems, productive ecosystems out there that will give us the clean water, yes, because of filtration reasons, which will ameliorate, uh, you know, temperature extremes and do all those kinds of things, but will also provide economic products like, say, timber for, you know, for, for timber companies for sales, but also allow us as individuals to go and satisfy our basic needs and food requirements in the healthiest possible way. And also to point out to these two wealthy nations where I spend so much time, Canada and the United States, that these natural harvests are part of our food security. 43 million people in your country suffer from some degree of food stress, 43 million annually. 
In Canada, it's about, I think, three to five million people or something are in that circumstance. We have a landscape yet because of the thoughtfulness of people before setting up natural areas, parks and refuges and national forests and keeping public lands public and working on private lands to improve circumstances. We still have in Canada and the United States an enormously untapped capacity to provide more natural food from that environment. And I would like to see us starting to turn our minds in that direction. So I began to ask the basic questions, you know, how much natural food do we harvest? Um, what's it worth? Uh, how much will it cost to replace it? Um, can, we, can we, in fact, increase the harvest of it? How many people participate in it? So I launched this Wild Harvest Initiative, which is now a big partnership involving industry, state governments, NGOs, private citizens, private foundations, and will soon include a number of other very big players. Um, where we have compiled all of the hunting and angling data from Canada and the United States. First time ever done, never done in any time in the history of the North American model or the North American conservation system. And we are soon going to be releasing the first round of information, which is the total number of animals harvested by species in every province and state, the total uh, biomass, the consumable biomass, and the value of that biomass based on commodity prices for beef, pork, chicken, and turkey, and so on in, in restaurant in uh, supermarkets. And then we're going to go to a level of the refined market value because this food is a specialty item which we believe would sell for probably 60 or $70 a pound. We already know, and I can tell you before we release the final figures, that we're talking billions of pounds of absolutely the finest meat that it is possible to procure on the planet. And that, in a world gone mad over health, fitness, and food security, et cetera, is a big deal. That's a narrative we could never speak about before because we never had the data before to be able to speak about it in any way. An individual hunter could, but not as a community. The other thing we're doing, my working hypothesis is 50 million people hunt and fish in Canada recreationally each year in Canada and the U.S., in both countries. I believe 200 million more people eat that food. So instead of the political equation being, you know, 4.5% of the people hunt, 12.5% maybe hunt and fish, we are suddenly going to be talking about a community of investment in this activity that may involve 250 million people out of 360 million, and many more who I believe would become readily interested in this kind of procurement of wild meat if they could just see some way in which their lifestyle would allow them to engage. The other thing I was very concerned about before I started this was thinking ahead to the criticisms against sustainable use of wildlife. Just imagine if somebody was to have asked us, you know, as a community, okay, uh, how many wild animals do you harvest on the North American continent each year? And no one not the Canadian Wildlife Service, not the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, no think tank, no NGO, not a single entity in the, in, in, the, in the world could say, we know. Now, what would that say about our North American model and our hunting that we portray as a conservation-based kind of thing? So we're moving ahead with this program. As I said, we have a lot of big sponsors. Uh, there's going to be a second phase when we release the data of high-end communication, and if you look at the sponsors we have in this model and think about the additive social media release, 
we're talking about being able to reach tens of millions of people simultaneously with things on this nature. We're, of this nature, we're going to be holding events across both countries that are going to be bringing together the berry pickers, the fruit pickers, the hunters, the anglers, and others. And one final major point we're going to be emphasizing with regard to this, as I said, is this sharing index. You do not go to the grocery store, as I've said many times, and buy a roast of meat or a jar of jam to give to your neighbor. But if you pick the berries and make the jam, or if you hunt the elk and butcher it, if you catch the fish, if you harvest the wild mushrooms, the very first thing you tend to do is to go and share that with your neighbor. And in terms of improving the image of the hunter-gatherer in society, I want for people to know about this and understand it's, it too is as fundamental a product out of the hunt and out of angling and out of wild gathering as is the very food itself. Yeah. So Shane, you know that you, you've often preached and you and I have talked about the big tent. You're creating a giant tent. Um, you know, you hit a lot of things in that last uh, monologue about the North American model. You have been instrumental in understanding how the model was defined and are working on the future of it. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came about. I know that you and Val Geist and John Oregon and others uh, help, help craft this thing we call the model. And I know I think you're working on a book about it for the future. Yeah, I mean, how this emerged, uh, the, the, the term entered the English language in about 1988, which is a surprise to a lot of people who now know about it because they think, you know, it was always the case. But the actual term, the components were there long before, but the actual term came out in about 1988 when Val Geist was sort of challenged by people to say, when he said our system of wildlife was being put at, at risk by game ranching and other factors, people challenged him and said, what system are you talking, what system? And out of that, he began to think, and as which is one of the great things that man does, obviously. <laughs> uh, he began to think about this, and he came up with this sort of architecture you know, of our approach. He called it a model. Could have been called an approach, whatever. And, uh, you know, and that came out in a, in a, in a technical uh, document, and we talked about it. And, um, you know, uh, the usual 15 or 20 or 30 people read that particular article, and then that was that. And... Three or four years later, in discussions with him, you know, I said, this could potentially be, you know, one of the absolutely most important things, Dr. Guys, that you've ever done. Because what human beings need, human beings need little conceptual briefcases they can carry around with them. So they don't have to talk about all the various aspects of a problem. They can open up that little briefcase and here it is sort of outlined, its principles, its structures, its elements. And that's what he gave us. The elevator message. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> How to describe your point in an elevator ride up there. <laughs> exactly. And that's, what, and that's what he had, although he probably wasn't thinking of an elevator, <laughs> but that's what he was doing. Uh, I thought this had to be brought to the world. I began speaking about the North American model in the United States in 1993. Uh, the first lecture I gave on it was at the Governor's Symposium in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and, you know, you had people from all the state agencies that were there and the NGOs. And there. Nobody had ever heard of the North yeah. American model. I mean, that's just a fact. They hadn't. It was, you know, it was sequestered away in a journal that was now published five years earlier. And, and from there, I met colleagues. Uh, John Organ was one. James Earl Kenimer, who was with the National Wild Turkey Federation, was a major force behind this. And we started organizing events 
going to the state agencies, talking about this, teaching people about it, uh, and eventually it caught on. And we didn't have any money. We didn't have any social media at all. You know, people say you can't do anything. We had, we had none of that. And now it has become part of the common parlance of the conservation movement, and it has generated its own supporters and its own critics, as we know. Yeah. So this far down the line, we accomplished what we wanted, certainly what I wanted to do, was to give this to people as a conceptual framework. Now I'm bringing it to the rest of the world through my work with the World Conservation Union because I think the world needs to understand what we have achieved here through sustainable use primarily, though not exclusively. There's a preservationist side of this model as well. And uh, Geist and I are now editing the first full book on the North American model that's coming out as part of a Wildlife Society series with Johns Hopkins Press. And that will be uh, published and available by September you know, September, October of this year. And in that book, we will talk about something about its values and its origins, various chapters on specific principles and components of the model, why they matter, why they work. And I also personally uh, weigh in fairly significantly, as do some other authors, but I probably more than most, on the questions of the deficiencies of the model and where the model is actually headed, in my view at least, in the next 25 to 50 years. So um, that's going to bring things a bit full circle, and the hope is that that book, which is designed primarily for the professional, the graduate student, and the academic, will become the teaching platform from which classes and courses will be developed, and that it will, of course, generate its own counter-reaction by those who say it's not the right way to go, and yeah. it's out of step with modern society, or it's deficient for one reason or another reason. Uh, but I think the book does a pretty darn good job of being honest about the model's um, strengths, uh, of explaining how the model came to be, uh, which many people don't know, um, exploring its many successes, but also exploring the fact that it is an organic process in an organic environment, social environment. And as a result of being in that dynamic, it has to reflect to, uh, to, to, one, to an extent. It has to reflect the emergent changes that are taking place in the values in society as well. Yeah. There's no point in us having a dinosaur of a model. If we need to modify it slightly, we should be willing to do so. But I have to say, uh, while some people, supporters of the model and others have suggested some additional principles in the model and so on, I have to say that I think Val Geist, for taking a first crack at a new idea, pretty much nailed most of the really important elements in conservation in North America. And he was trying to point out that, you know, what I term the myth of wildlife exists by accident. I think he was trying to show just what it took to keep wildlife with us. And I am deeply concerned that a, a lot of people in society are developing the idea innocently enough they're not, they're not activists. They're just developing the notion that wildlife can exist by accident. And I can tell you, nowhere in this world, not in the deep oceans, not in the deserts of, of Africa, not in the high plateaus of Mongolia, not in the rainforest of the Congo, any longer does wildlife exist by accident. It exists by virtue of the actions we take, the decisions we make, and the decisions we fail to make. Well, and, and I think, you know, I think it's something that we, we in our society today don't 
are not doing well is a, 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 a civil discourse on a, a value-based fundamental thing such as this and saying we can agree on certain parts and we can disagree on other and, and it's not etched in stone this is not a ten commandments written on a slab of stone we need to have these debates we need to have these conversations about what makes us hunters what makes us humans and what do we need to do to continue our natural existence in 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 a natural world with with the habitat that we all care about mm-hmm. um, and so i think creating an opportunity to have that discussion and debate is what's so important if, there are disagreements, but there are also some incredibly strong and profound fundamental p- portions of that uh, the, the vision that you guys have put together. So I think it's great to have that discourse and to open it up and say, this is important, but we have to all talk about where we're going from here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly true. And, you know, some of the realities that we have is, you know, the one of the most fundamental supportive agencies within the North American model as it was constructed was recreational hunting and angling. And uh, and all of the funding that comes from that, and so on and so forth, which most people are probably aware, who are listening to this podcast. Um, but you know that constituency is getting smaller and smaller. Um, I'm hoping that th- through things like the wild harvest and the whole preoccupation with wild food and so on, we can help turn this around to some extent. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a problem that the community is, is getting smaller, therefore the funding mechanisms are declining. And the state agencies, which are charged in this country and in Canada uh, with delivering wildlife conservation programs, are finding it a very, uh, you know, it, it's a struggle, becoming more mm-hmm. of a struggle all the time. Even beyond that, though, we have to find ways to make conservation as inclusive as possible not only because wildlife belongs to everyone. It doesn't just belong to hunters or non-hunters or anti-hunters or whatever. Wildlife belongs to everyone. And that doesn't just mean that the benefits of wildlife belong to everyone. What I keep trying to stress to audiences, it also means that the problems facing wildlife belong to everyone too. It's not like, you know, you're just giving this beautiful thing and there's no responsibilities. I think discourse is a very good thing. And I think, you know, the debates are, are healthy. I also believe that the model itself, in its wider formulation, has proven its strengths, and it has been in place for 120 years. And in the course of human society and human history, anything that has been in place actively and performing successfully, relatively, uh, for 120 years is quite a success story. Absolutely. but as the book will point out, I have my own feelings about you know some of the things that some of the deficiencies and some of the ways in which it's going to have to change. Well, we look really look forward to, to reading that book. Um, when's that coming out? Uh, by the fall, of S- September. It certainly will be available by October. Okay. Yeah. So um, hopefully, I mean, I've always said what got you to where you are now may not be what gets you to the future. Yep. And I think that's the same concept here. Is yep. You know, we need to be thinking. We have so much more knowledge about conservation now than we did 120 years ago. And it is up to us. It's our responsibility and obligation to apply that forward. Yeah. Because there are going to be things thrown at us, whether it's climate change, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, you name it, that we're going to have to be able to adapt and be flexible to be successful. Yes. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that. You know, I, I help teach the model at different levels and, 
and I get folks thinking about it. And there is a, there are folks out there that think it is a recipe that was designed back in the 1850s or 70s that then we followed out. And that really wasn't the case. So uh, moving forward, I think it's going to be imperative to have folks like you and Val Geist and others, you know, creating this dialogue, getting us to critically think about what we need and then applying those resources, skills, funding, effort, everything else moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I agree with you. And I think, uh, you know, how we got this started was by, you know, going into state agencies and speaking about it, going to North American conferences and speaking about it and so on. I feel personally that we need a refresher course now and uh, that we almost need to go back over that process a second time in preparing ourselves for what's going to happen in the 21st century. The challenges we have with new ecosystems being established, and I try to stress this with climate change, you know, there's not only going to be different ecosystems, there's going to be novel ecosystems that we haven't seen before. We just, just two days ago have discovered that grizzly bears have now made their way into Ontario. Um, you know, we have this cross between grizzlies and polar bears in the Arctic called pizzlies. And I would just ask a question of the listeners and anybody in the audience who maybe works with a state agency or an NGO or whatever, you know, okay, what are we, what are we going to call those beasts? So are the, the, the few ragtag grizzlies that have now made their way into Ontario, which means they probably will continue to move further east. They were at one time in Labrador in the Ungava system. Um, you know, what are we going to call them now? Are they endangered? Are they threatened because a few of them have moved in across the border into a new, new, a new agency? And what are we going to do with pizzly bears? I mean, um, you know, this cross between the, the polar and the grizzly, the, uh, the polar and the brown, I mean, they are going to increase in numbers, uh, and then we're going to have to deal with them from some sort of legislative point of view. I mean, there's so many massive and, you know, complicated new, new questions that are going to have to be asked about protected areas and where to put them and whether they should be moved now, about corridors of connectivity, which may be operational now, but which are going to change in the next 15 to 20 years, uh, species distributions, the loss of moose populations due to the ex explosion of, of winter tick as a result of, of, of temperature changes, the massive uh, you know, disappearance of caribou from the eastern ocean, the east, the, the, from the Atlantic all the way now almost to the Pacific and to the, and to the Arctic Ocean. Uh, you know, these are big, big fundamental changes on the land affecting wildlife and affecting our use of it. So uh, at the same time that we're trying to engage more people in the process, we have to recognize that the, the knowledge we've inherited is not necessarily perfectly presented or perfectly positioned to solve the problems coming our way. Yeah. We're dealing with some uh, novel landscapes in the Intermountain West right now because of wildfire and climate change where we've lost the sage ecosystem. Yep. And we've got now an annual grassland, and some of that annual grass is invasives. It's cheatgrass, yep. it's Medusa head rye, it's a bunch of other species that are Mediterranean nature that were brought here for uh, one reason or another that now have ballooned on the landscape and have taken over, creating a very short fire interval. But what it's done is, is it really challenges us to say, what can we do? Yep. I mean, we've spent uh, considerable money and time trying to replant sagebrush and regrow sagebrush. 
in a system that may not be able to support it. And we're getting a change in the flora and fauna in that system. And so we're seeing mule deer not use it as much. We're seeing sage grouse not be able to use it as much. But there's new species coming in with that. And the question is, is how, you know, what do you do about it? Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a question of what you do about it, and I, I, I say that there's even a more fundamental question. Why should you do anything about it? Um, in other words, we are going to create these systems and these different assemblages of wildlife, and they will be, you know, if you wiped history clean and just started with the people who see those systems, they would say, oh, that's the system we have, right? Um, we would be saying, well, that's not the system. The system should be this system because that's the system we had. Uh, and if you go back far enough, of course, you realize that, you know, when N Native American, well, when, when the first in peoples came across from Beringia and down the coast of west coast of, the, of uh, North America and eliminated uh, a lot of the wildlife that was here and changed the system through prescribed fire and so on over many, many, many centuries, that, you know, that was a system. And some people say, well, we want that system back, you know. We want to rewild the system. We want to bring the system back as the way it was, you know, 10, 12,000 years ago. Uh, so we're going to face these kind of even moral as well as practical questions. Okay, when does an invasive species become the norm, particularly if you're faced with a reality that you cannot do anything about it? Um, and, and then... When do you shift from the idea it's invasive and it's there uh, and we got to get rid of it somehow to the fact, well, maybe now we got to start managing for it, even though that species or assemblage of species may have created a completely different guild of wildlife that you're referring to, Steve. I mean, you know, one of the things we don't have in our agencies, for example, are people who are basically trained in these kinds of ideas of you know, moral philosophy and, and the ethics of conservation from that perspective. We think about ethics in terms of hunting and so on and so forth, but the ethics of these big questions, this is going to demand new kinds of talents in our agencies that we never ever even thought about before. Uh, and so, but having said all of that, that new assemblage of challenges and problems, it's an open question as to whether that is a greater challenge to our capacities, intelligence, and, and, and innovativeness as human beings than were the challenges that presented themselves in 1880 to 1920, when we, without scientific knowledge and without state agencies and without federal agencies and without enforcement officers and without funding mechanisms and without university programs and without all of the things, uh, laws and, and funding mechanisms, all the things we take for granted today, we simply said, oh, we're going to turn around one of the greatest slaughters of wildlife, one of the greatest depletions in human history, and we're going to turn it around with none of those things in place, and we're going to be successful. And as it turned out, we gradually built the model, built the institutions, and we have been relatively successful for 120 years. So it's an open question in my mind whether these big, bold, new problems are any bigger, bolder, or more problematic than the problems we solved before. Yeah. Well, Shane, it's been uh, a joy spending the last uh, half an hour or so with you. We're looking at our watch. We both, uh, we know we ha you have to go and Jody's got to go. So um, we really look forward to the book. We look forward to your continued engagement and advice and in, in helping us 
get to where we need to go. And so um, is there any parting words of wisdom that our listeners can, you know, what we often do is try to say, what's one little thing that an individual can do to help make a difference? Is there any key point of advice that you can give us? The most important thing any human being can do, in my view, with regard to this big issue is any time, in any circumstance, that their paths and the path of another species crosses, whether it is an insect, a butterfly, a bee, a pollinator of any kind, or a small songbird. This could be on a city street as they're walking to work on a blustery day and they see those little birds up in those stark trees. Or it, could be, it could be any of those kinds of haphazard circumstances that usually they just blow past on their way to work to get their latte in the morning. The biggest thing they can do is stop for 30 seconds and just watch that little animal go through its life for that short window of time. I guarantee you there is no one who does that who ever walks away without receiving something really special. And that kind of experience, even for the city dweller who's had no experience with nature in what I might call the wild or the wilderness, can give them an appreciation for, for animals. And without appreciation for animals by a huge majority of the people on this planet, we are going to continue to lose them at a ferocious rate. And we ought to think about a world where no birds sing. Yeah. Well, well, Shane, thank you so much. We all very much appreciate your the, the, the depth, the, the thought um, that you provoke in all of us. Um, if somebody wants to get more information either about the Wild Harvest Initiative or the work that you're doing or read some of the work, is there a website that they can go to? Yes, they can just call up the conservationvisions.com. Uh, site and there soon will be in about two weeks time a brand new standalone website a recreated website just on the wild harvest but I have my own conservation visions website of course that they can visit as well and there's now a, uh, there's now a lot of stuff out there through the social media platforms probably far too much uh, that people can gain access to to sort of <laughs> uh, you know, if they have any interest in learning about my ideas. Well, and Shane is a pro prolific writer and speaker and, and, and somebody we've all heard and enjoyed and appreciated over time. So even Googling Shane Mahoney is probably yeah. some, going to pull up a lot of information that you More can than use. you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate talking mule deer and talking conservation with you here at the SHOT Show. It's a busy time, and we know it, it, to sit down for a half an hour from that floor is a little crazy, but we appreciate it because I know our listeners are going to really enjoy hearing your your vision, your thoughts about conservation in the future. Well, so thank you. I hope they do, and you're very welcome, and thanks for having me. Until, thank you. Until the next time, I'm Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda. Thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.